Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast, an exploration of the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. In this episode, I chat with Mitchell Scott. Mitchell's one of the co-founders of Mountain Culture Group, which publishes the magazine Kootenai Mountain Culture and Coast Mountain Culture. They're among the most popular outdoor magazines in British Columbia. Mountain sports has completely transformed over the last 30 years, not just in the technology of the equipment that is being used, but it's also its popularity around the world. Mitch has been part of this transformation, both as an enthusiast taking part and watching and witnessing the way that mountain biking and backcountry skiing has developed over this time, but he's also had an influential role in documenting the culture and how it's changed in the way he's founded these two mountain culture magazines, but also in working as the global director of marketing for Kona Bikes. In this conversation, Mitch takes us through that story of the transformation, how the sport has changed over those years, and some of the wider considerations of British Columbia becoming one of the most popular destinations in the world for mountain sports. We talk about the relationship with nature, that you develop through spending time outdoors and how that relationship can act as a a way to help us better drop into flow states. Mitch shares with us his wisdom and experience around managing risk in these sports, how he manages fear, risk and death, as well as how he has honed his gut instinct to make better decisions around this, around fear and risk, and, and, and when to hit that gnarly line and when to give it a miss. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. Here's Mitch Scott. Cool, Mitch. So great to talk to you. Um, I know anyone who's in BC is probably well aware of uh, Mountain Culture magazine, whether that's Kootenai Mountain Culture or, or Coast Mountain Culture. Um, this project and in, in exploring the, the deeper lessons that we learn from the mountains is an exploration of mountain culture and I feel like it, it's very similar to, to, to the vision that you uh, that you have or, or what you what you create in, in your magazine so I'm really excited for this conversation um, but I'd love to start off just by learning a little bit more about your background what was your introduction to the mountains how did you become such a part of this culture um, yeah, okay. So I grew up on the North Shore in Vancouver. Um, I'm a little older now. So when I was a kid, it was, uh, I actually grew up in West Vancouver and it was, it was the cabin community back then, you know, back in the, uh, in the seventies and the eighties when I was, you know, um, growing up and we actually, um, my parents had a place in Whistler since the early 70s, like 1974, I think they got a place up in Whiskey Jack, which is still there up above the gondola. And I just have these memories of a little kid um, clambering down and getting in the aluminum buckets that were the gondola or riding the old olive chair and um, skiing with my family and skiing with our, our, our family friends and um, and then right around when I was like 14, 15, 16, me and uh, a couple other buddies, we just started exploring. And, uh, you know, instead of 
you know, today when I send my kids out, they've got their transceivers and their, and their skins and all their safety equipment. We just had like backpacks full of Nanaimo bars and, and that was it. You know, it was like before Alpine touring really was a thing. And, um, we just became totally addicted to it. We would watch the news all week and watch the weather. We got really good at understanding what, like when I was 15, 16, my buddies and I would have like meteorological uh, conversations about weather systems and the jet stream and if it was lining up for a good weekend up at Whistler and it's just what we live for. That translated into mountain biking and I was, you know, just like we were getting some of the first mountain bikes in British Columbia and started building trails. And um, I just grew up in this incredible time, I feel, in British Columbia. I mean, it's, it's all still incredible where, you know, we were really, we were kind of pioneers when we were kids. Um, not, I guess we were. A lot of the guys I've grew up with have gone on to do incredible things in the space. Um, but we just just developed a real um, love for it. And I remember moments of like, you know, seeing the sun come through the trees and we would have names for that. And we would have secret names for rocks and runs on the mountain. And uh, it, this, that's just where it, it just wove into the fabric of, of who I am at a, at, a, at a young age. Beautiful. And so, by the sounds of kind of spending your time on, let's say, understanding the weather patterns and, and meteorological studies, uh, that that definitely stands out and suggests you're very much part of the uh, of the culture there. I'm curious, did you have mentors or or who was it that kind of paved the way for you back during during that time? Well, we didn't necessarily have mentors per se that we were spending time with. There were there were there were definitely um, guys that were older than us that were uh, forging the way that we were hearing about and, and reading about in magazines a little bit. Um, the Stoltman brothers um, were some of the first trail builders on the North Shore when it comes to mountain biking. Uh, Dangerous Dan, um, the digger, we'd run into these guys. We would go to the Cove bike shop and run into some of the sort of you know, older you know, mountain bike pioneers there guys like Eric Pahoda and Trevor Peterson were guys we never really knew. I know, I know Eric now quite well, um, but you know, when we were kids, we'd see them and look up to them. We'd see them in powder magazine and um, we'd, we'd find out what, you know, what they had been skiing. And so there was a lore around, but we were really just a band of like, you know, six to 10 kids from, 12 to 16 when we really started diving into it and we just kind of figured it out on our own which i think was pretty cool because um you know it forced us to, to figure the things out on our own terms um rather, rather than someone teaching us i would never recommend it now <laughs> like i remember you know we, we got into a lot of avalanches no one you know no one ever got fully buried or anything thank god because we didn't have shovels but we we're lucky um but we didn't know what we we're doing we we're, we we're just kids um yeah high on sugar and and nature just figuring out on our own were there any hard lessons during that time or, or close calls that stand out to you 
Um, looking back now, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, not being able to find a hut and building a snow cave that collapsed on us, but we always just kind of never thought of it as being a big deal and got out of it. You know, we would set off avalanches that wouldn't hit anybody we thought they were cool. We just didn't know there's no avalanche Canada back then. There's, there's just that this wasn't part of the culture then. So we, we kind of were blind to the danger a little bit and a little, a little too innocent. So um, not really, as we started to get older um, and we started to go deeper and, you know, we, I, you know, we've lost some friends for sure, people close to us. Um, but at that early stage, there wasn't, that's, I think that's why it just enraptured us so much because we, we were lucky and nothing really bad did happen. Some guys got hurt, but they're okay. Yeah. Mm. Gotcha. And so I know soon, again, the next step in that you, you ended up working for, for Kona at, at some point, when did you move into that? Or how did you, how did uh, the outdoors go from just being a hobby to a, to a career for you? Um, well, after I finished university, I went to the University of Victoria. I, I went traveling for um, six months and I, my, my goal was to, I wanted to, um, trek the Andes. So I, I started in, um, Peru and I worked my way down to Tierra del Fuego and I just went on all these like solo hikes. And when I got back, um, just working in construction, um, I had taken quite a journal. I was, I did the trip by myself. So I, I, uh, which I, I don't really like spending a ridiculous amount of time by myself. So I was, I was quite lonely. So I wrote a lot and uh, I had been sort of in university. I'd, I'd, you know, I've always kind of been a storyteller. I come from a family of storytellers and I've always enjoyed writing. And someone just told me you should see if you could get some of your stories published from your adventure, um, which I did um, surprisingly. And, and I just decided that I was going to be a, a writer back then you know, magazines like Power and Bike were Bibles for their sport. And um, there was pretty good money getting published. And I, I met a couple of uh, writers who, you know, encouraged me to keep going. And um, it took me a, a, a few years, but I started a career as a freelance writer, magazine writer, creative nonfiction. And um, actually got um, on the editorial uh, roster for, for Power and Bike and I was writing for the Global Mail at the time, and and that sort of writing career, uh, and that's shortly thereafter we started. Uh, me and my business partner started Cootie Mountain Culture. That was that was about twenty years ago, um, and that's what led to the the job at at Kona. I had a new I had a new kid, and making a living as a freelance writer is fairly challenging. It's a lot more challenging now, I think, than than it was when I was doing it. But um, yeah, they offered me some steady income with a BC brand, um, and uh, was able to do some cool creative stuff with those guys. So. Gosh, I didn't realize Kona came after after Kootenai Mountain Culture, and so it yeah. sounds like Kootenai Mountain Culture started out of a basically an avenue for you to, to, to better get your, your work published. Is it, was that correct? Or what was the kind of the vision around it? Cause it's, I feel like it's morphed into something completely different since, since when you started or was this the vision from the start? 
no, it's it's definitely turned into something. Uh, I, th I think it's always grown and changed over the years. It's, yeah, and the vision of what it is now, we didn't have at the start for sure. Um, it was actually started by my business partner, Peter Moines, who um, was asked by a shop owner in town to, he thought it'd be a cool idea to start a magazine. My business partner, Peter, was a photographer at the time. He approached Peter and said, hey, let's do a magazine. Um, the first issue didn't go very well for ad sales, um, I guess, because a lot of people didn't want to advertise in a magazine that was owned by a shop. So the shop owner said to Peter, you know, you can have the magazine. Um, it could be yours if you just, you know, take on, you know, the, uh, the debt that's, that we've incurred. Um, and it, and it did well, like it was, you know, it was definitely, it had launched and, and, uh, it was, a, it was a thing after that first issue. So he decided to do it and about, um, I started writing for the very first one. And then about, um, about issue four, uh, I came on as a 50, 50 partner, the magazine had incurred a little bit more debt. So we just, um, we both split the debt, took it on personally, um, and created a 50, 50 partnership. And then, yeah, since then that was over 15 years ago, we've, we've operated both magazines debt free for since, yeah. Um, so over that time, I think um, we've we've had the, the very very good fortune of having a staff that's grown up with us. So um, you know we've got an incredible designer. He had just moved to Nelson from Toronto. He just left this really cool job as a design studio. He was looking for something cool to do in town. Um, our managing editor Tara who's you know just a, one of the best editors I've ever worked with in, in my career started off as you know she, we, we hired her because her dad was a linguist professor so we figured she had experience um, all of our staff has kind of grown up with us and our core staff of probably eight people has been the same for the last 15 years so I think that collective talent and that ability to work together has allowed us to change the vision a little bit to the point now where it's really like I would say we do more journalism than anything before in the early days it was sort of a celebration of mountain culture and it was is very sports and it was fairly bro and it was you know you know buddy went and skied this and you know this new film came out and you know now we're just you know it's, it always blows me away just how diverse our, our story lineup is. And, and we're getting into some fairly, you know, contentious, um, difficult issues. We're just, we're, we're, we're doing a 3000 word story in this latest issue on pri on the issues of private land logging in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So the vision has changed um, over the years, but I think at the core of it all is, is, is we want to, you know, we want to articulate and give a voice to the connection between people and a landscape. And that's, I like that, that. that don't, I don't think that's really ever changed. Yeah. Yeah. The connection between people and the landscape. And, and I can see how things like the holy issue or, or religion issue or, or fringe issues or conversations about death all 
all layer onto that. Uh, I, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more about issues that stand out for you or, or the particular s- stories that really articulate how it's changed over time. Yeah, good question. Um, well, I think the big one is, you know, and I saw it happen in Whistler growing up there is, you know, people find a special place and um, they, they, they feel a certain entitlement or a certain ownership over it, you know? Um, and I remember the early days, of, and it, that's, it's localism, it's, it's all of that. You know, I was first year, don't tell people where this place is, keep it secret. Um, but then at the same time, you know, you, you need economies to keep things going. And, uh, and tourism is interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's, it's probably better than logging and it's probably better than mining and, but it is disruptive and then it's attracting a lot of people here and, you know, using carbon, they're using fuels to get here. And then all of a sudden we've got a whole bunch of people in this, in the space that, that live here and housing prices go up. And so I think that like the, the sort of the fight of the mountain culture, the, the mountain town to retain its identity through the face of growth and change is, is always one that's probably fascinating me the most. And we've written about it a ton in, in a different, from different angles. Um, and it's always blown me away because people, I think they don't feel like they have control over it. Like it's something that it's in, inevitable. And, and a place will get ruined. And I would argue that that's, that's wrong. You know, we, we, we do have the collective power. Things are going to change for sure. Um, and you can qualify growth however you want to, but we have the ability to point it in a direction that is going to work for the people that come after us. Namely, I would say the most important ones would be our kids. So I would love it if my kids had the opportunity and maybe they don't want to live here or not, but have the opportunity to do something cool in the place where they live, in the place where they're born, as opposed to, I could either work at the mill or I could work at the, at the mine or, you know, there's nothing for me here, I'm moving on. So I think that issue is one that really fascinates me and you see it working in some places and not in others you know uh, a town like clearwater which you know has got one of the best heli ski operations in the world and the mountains are unbelievable or Vailmont struggles to make it work um fernie is super cool awesome town it's gets inundated by albertans and then they go and, and there's this push and pull and then some towns like, you know, Rawson, I think, and Nelson and Revelstoke to a certain extent are doing a good job of, you know, finding that sort of mix of, um, what I always say with tourism is you want to attract the people that you would want to maybe put down roots and live there and contribute to the community. So when they're there and they're visiting, they're like, hey, we should be cool because we might live here one day, as opposed mm. to, I don't give a, a fuck about this place because we're leaving on 
Monday morning or Sunday night. Yeah, this is an, an issue I think about a, a lot. So specifically, I, I live in in North Vancouver, but previously lived in Squamish and, and I'm moving back to Squamish. And I specifically the trail network are on the sea disguise. There's a there's a real they're very busy and congested. And and I think a lot about how so much of the the experience is often being one with nature that, that can get uh, congested by by other people there. Yet I am often conflicted by more people kind of living that life and, and, and engaging that activity is, is probably better for society. You know, it's a, it's a very fine balance uh, on a tourism perspective, but also in just a mountain town culture perspective. Like for example, I, I, I've only been in BC two years and, and I, when, as soon as I arrived here, I moved in, in Squamish, moved to Squamish and, and I've seen it change a whole lot just in the last two years. And I've heard it changed even more in the 10 years before that. And, and that townhouse is a, a building going up everywhere. There's, there's tighter regulations around uh, people living out of their vans. And it, it very much feels like it is at risk of being gentrified to the fact that it's losing its, its charm. What's your thought on yeah. when that can go too far? Um, yeah, difficult one to answer, I think. I think when it goes too far is that moment where the people that have really, you know, say for example, like the, the core people behind the Squamish, and I'm, I forget what it's called, but the, the Squamish Trail Society, which I believe those people, and I know there's there's many, hundreds of them probably now, have built one of the most incredible mountain bike trail infrastructures on the face of the planet. And they've done it with making agreements with First Nations, and they've done it um, you know, with with public money, and they've, they've it's just, you know, I was there last summer, it's incredible. So you get to the point where those people all want to leave because this place has gone to shit or there's, you know, policy has changed and they're starting to like build houses on the, you know, if the, the, when the core people of a community, the, the people who have built, helped build the, the, the very interesting assets of the community start leaving, then I think that's when you've gone too far. The interesting thing about the sea to sky that I think people need to recognize is it's going to be busy there, and 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 that's okay because um, it's actually really good for British Columbia. I think not only the, the tax dollars and the, the, the tourism visits and the, the brand, the notoriety of the Sea to Sky, um, it concentrates. You know, if we had all those people going all over British Columbia, all, all over the place, it would, it would, it would I think it would screw up a lot of small towns. Like we couldn't handle it; other towns couldn't handle it. So. Having the infrastructure to, you know, conference centers, Whistler, you know, ski resorts, the city, it's, it's good that way for British Columbia. It might not be that great for individuals, but then, you know, there's, there's the opportunity to, to go somewhere else. I mean, that's, I think, the sort of the, the uh, two, two faces of the sea of skies. It's like, man, that place is just stunningly beautiful and there's so many cool things to do. Um, but there's a lot of people there. 
And that's just, you, there's nothing you're going to be able to do about that. It's just, but other than what I think Squamish is trying to do with, um, you know, the, the recreational aspects of it, the, the places away from the development or the houses or the downtown. So I think they kind of screwed up the downtown. So, but don't, you know, <laughs> uh, it's a yeah, tough I, one. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. Yeah, framing that challenge around the trail builders and, and the people that make the the activities really world class is a is a good way to to go about it. The the way I've been thinking about it, which probably isn't the, the best way to think about it, is uh how how something really awesome always starts with like a fringe group, you know, and, and I think and, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on the growing popularity of let's call it outdoor recreational culture. Um, and that through kind of the, the, the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, mountain biking was, was very fringe. So it was, so it was backcountry skiing and, and things. And, and as more and more, as, as it's become more and more popular, um, it, it can, when you get long lines for, for, for ski runs or, or when they start graveling a, a trail to see some some amazing glacier or, or, or something the the experience and the magic of it can very much get lost or, or commoditized yeah but at the same time you have people in nature so this has always been like the, the difficult you know again the, the two sides of this equation are um so you on the one end you could have nature to yourself and no one's there. And you're like, why is it, you know, I can't believe I'm the only person here. And there are many places you can go and, and have that experience for sure. But then you need to realize that, well, no one else is going into nature. And the, our biggest challenge right now, the reason why climate change is happening and all these terrible things are happening to our wild spaces is because not enough people care about you know, if, if everybody, you know, in Canada was so in love with old growth forests that they would, they're just so passionate about old growth forests, like you know, 95% of our population just couldn't stand to bear another old growth tree logged. I guarantee you another old growth tree would not be logged in Canada, but not enough people care about them because not enough people are seeing them. Not enough people are getting out inside of them a lot. There's tens of millions of people in Canada that do not have a relationship with nature. There's billions of people in the world that do not have a relationship with nature. So by you thinking that it should just be you is actually, you know, a, a defeatist kind of a methodology because that, that means that less people are going to care about, you know, protecting it, um, you know, less people are going to have a meaningful relationship with it. And a meaningful relationship does not come by going up to see the sky gondola and looking at the sunset. It comes from going on regular walks and swimming in the ocean and doing something you've never done before and going and seeing the glacier and all of these things. So it's, you know, it's a difficult one for sure. But when I, I'm in places and, and the Kootenays since COVID, like the outdoor scene here is completely blown up. Um, 
I have our magazine has been called out sometimes for attracting too many people, or we write a story about a spot and all of a sudden that spot's busy. And, you know, I, you know, I've been called out in the lineup in a big lineup at Whitewater, our local resort for like, that's why this, our place is, is busy now. And it's just like, well, sorry, I, I really don't think it's my fault, but at the same time, like you can flip it and go like, look at all, there's more and more people that like want a relationship with nature. They, they want to be close to it. They want to take their kids out in it. Um, you know, they, they want to get the feeling that comes from seeing um, birds and fish and beautiful trees and stuff. So how do you, how do you like keep that to yourself and think that that's a good thing? Yeah, that's a, it's a really, really good call out uh, on, yeah, there's definitely a selfish element to, that kind of mindset that I'm guilty of for, for sure. Um, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about the connection a bit because I, part of the reason I've named this mountain whispers is of the belief that, that there is, that there's lessons you can learn whispers from, from the mountains uh, in terms of developing that connection or, or, or a wisdom of, of sorts. What would you say if you had to describe your relationship with nature that you've, that you've developed here, how would you, how would you describe it? Um, I would say that it's starting to become a very old friend that I have a, a ton of respect for. Um, and like someone that you really care about, uh, you pay attention to them. You, you know, I think it's a great name, Mountain Whispers. You try and listen to them. Um, you spend time with them. You do good things for them. Um, I just spent the last year working on a campaign in Nelson uh, to save uh, a lake that was Cottonwood Lake that was had a whole clear cut schedule to go above and the community got together to buy the lake or buy the land from the land over above, above the lake to basically save this spot. And, you know, that felt really good to to get into that and, and participate with my community in, in making a difference. Um, yeah, I've, I've had some of my more profound life lessons out there. Um, you know, we're, I'm going on a hot trip tomorrow with my son and, you know, there's always a little bit of trepidation, um, but there's a whole bunch of respect. Um, you know, when you're with someone that you care about and you're interested in, your senses are heightened. Um, you're having fun. Um, so I'm definitely not like a, just a passive traveler through. Uh, I, I, I think I try and be like pretty, as connected as I can, you know? Um, on the, I, I love skinning, you know, ski touring and the skin trap, we all often get like, you know, I have, I have this thing where you often like get into your life, you know, and you're thinking about your relationships or work you have to do or things you maybe screwed up on or things you're going to do better when you get back. And when I catch myself doing that, I, I immediately try and just like look at the things around, like, you know, the needles on the trees and the way the snow is hanging off um, a branch or you know, 
patterns in the snow and what's going on with the flowers, et cetera. So um, trying to be, you know, it's an active relationship as opposed to a passive one. That's a good way to describe it. I, uh, there's, a, there's a philosopher out of Toronto, John Vivekin, and he talks about this idea of participatory knowing, which is where you're, you're participating in an environment and the, the barriers between you and that environment start to, start to, to blend together. And that's something that, that resonates with me when I enter uh, a, a particular spot and, and find kind of the everyday uh, to-do list starts to, starts to disappear into, into the background. Um, and it is, I, I kind of define it as a, as a flow state of, of sorts, but um, I really like the way you define it as, as, a, as an old, old friend or, or, or a friendship and, and uh, treating it as a way that, that comes alive because when you treat it that way, you, you straight away have a lot more respect for it, you know, and you start to think about what its, its needs are and how you can respect that and what you can do more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, when you talk about flow space, I always find it so fascinating. You know, it's a little different when you're skinning or you're hiking um, maybe climbing, but when you're skiing or you're mountain biking or you're in those moments where it's kind of intense and you really don't have any other opportunity but to just take all the information that's coming through your senses and through your experience and your body translate it into movements that are going to get you where you need to go. So avoiding trees or hitting a cliff or whatever, and not a single person I would, I would, I would venture to say can think of anything else when they're in that moment. You just can't, there's just no time. You don't have the brain capacity to think about yesterday or, you know, the fact that you're hungry. So I often try and go like, okay, how do I take that in the, in the, in the high adrenaline, you know, high motion moments and, and take that back to the more tranquil moments of just watching a sunset or standing on a peak or, or skinning or on a mountain bike climb or fishing, you know, like that's when you catch, I mean, I like fly fishing. That's when you catch fly fish is when you're not thinking about anything other than being an insect on the end of a line. Yeah. And what, and, and pretending what that fish would like to see from under the water and, I swear, those are the best, the best uh, fisher people are the ones that, you know, go into the spirit of the fish or the bug, and they're not thinking about, you know, the new wheels on my truck or the money I owe my buddy here. Absolutely. Yeah. When you talk about specifically on the downhill of a mountain bike or, or, or ski, that's for me, it's the same. That's the, that's the most reliable way for me to drop into flow because you've got no choice but to drop into flow if you if you're out of flow or if you're thinking about anything else other than the direct experience and your your interaction with the trail and your bike uh you're you're you you're risking into trouble but if you're absolutely focused on that it's a completely different experience and then the i i it also resonates with me a lot to to translate that to the the still moments as well and i and i kind of treat it as a practice of um like the, the climb is often those moments of stillness and, and, and kind of resting at the peak is the, those moments as well. Uh, 
And it's that stillness that allows me to go that much further on the downhill. Yeah, but isn't it interesting that we need that kind of stimuli to really get us into that, into that state? Except, it, especially for me. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure there's people that are, and I know some people are, are, are better at doing it, but it's like, I don't think I can, it's hard for me to get into the pure living in the moment that I am when I'm in that like sort of high risk second as opposed to being you know just sitting still i can get there sometimes but it it takes more work you know whereas like the second you drop in on something it's instantaneous and it's over quickly um and yeah maybe when you're when you're really shredding you're there um and if you're not you're you know thinking about other stuff but i i find that interesting mm. um, the, the human mind is so especially these days is so easily distracted and so kind of like self-absorbed and i think that's the cool thing that nature does for people is it pulls you out of yourself um and not, not so much out there these days can do that i agree i agree and that makes me think of like coming back from let's say like a six-day backpacking trip and when you first engage with your phone or your your laptop it just feels weird you like there's like you can can feel the light on your eyes and it just doesn't feel good and it makes you realize that you actually become used to that that that's not natural it's it's it, 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 the state that it takes 6 days to get into is what what it what it should be it's very much a like a appealing back to 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 that more natural state yeah 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 i the other thing that comes up for me when we're talking about flow states is uh, risk and reward and, and, and also risk versus fear. Um, kind of growing up on the, the, the kind of doing these sports, it seems like you've had a, a fair relationship with, uh, with risk uh, and fear. I'm curious if you could reflect on how that relationship has changed as you've gotten older and, and had kids and things like that. Sorry, say that one more time. Like, yeah, so talking about kids, my kids just texted me. <laughs> no, no problem. I, I'm sure. thinking in, in terms of part of why you can so reliably drop into flow states and downhill sports is because there's that risk there and you've got no choice but to, to focus. Yeah. And, and it seems like throughout your life, it's been a common thing. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I really. I really believe it's a, it's it's a good thing, and, and I think you know the the rise of adventure sports and extreme sports has is a good thing. I mean, and um, the consequence of that is is, is people are going to die. Um, but again, like people are going to die doing everything. I mean, the, the the most ironic thing about that this whole conversation is will go like, oh, these guys went to K2 and they were doing something crazy. And, um, or, you know, um, this guy died in an avalanche. He was out on the wrong day, right? Wrong place. And these are all tragic events. But for some reason, it's like getting eaten by a shark. Um, but then, you know, we jump in our car and that's the most dangerous thing we do by far. And we don't even think anything of it. 
And we'll, we'll go down the reach to grab a chocolate bar that we dropped and not look at the road for 10 seconds and not really think about that or, or take a phone call. Or, so that kind of conversation is lost on me a little bit in the context of everything around us and flying on planes. Like, I don't know how you get on a plane and not think that this is just the craziest thing you've ever done in your life. You're in a metal tube with you know, tons of fuel and these crazy engines. And it just doesn't seem probable to me. So, but, you know, when you put yourself into um, risky situations in the out of doors, your senses are super tuned. Um, you are drawing on the experience that you have or wishing you did have, if you don't have it, to, you know, navigate terrain, prepare in worst case scenario. Um, that, that to me is like, that's, that's, that's what we're built on. That's, that's how we evolved. Like we lived that way for, you know, thousands of years is like every morning you got up and you left the cave or the tent or the, the you know whatever and you're like i just gotta get back and i have to go get this thing but i gotta get back and i know that there's all this stuff that could 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 fuck me up that could kill me that could make me lost that could hurt me that could you know so how do i avoid that, that? what do i do and now you're paying attention to every little thing around you. And that's connection, whether you're thinking that way or not. Um, what I love about backcountry skiing is, um, and I'm seeing it in my, my youngest son is in a really cool program at this school here in Nelson. He's an amazing skier is he is learning how mountains work in the winter time. And you know, how snow stacks up, what weather does, where are good places to, get up, you know, onto a ridge, what are the safer slopes, what's going to hold depending on where the sun is, what's going on with the temperature. And he's just doing it because he likes to shred. But in the background, he's 18 years old and it's starting to come out now. He's developing this really tangible relationship with, with nature. So what is that going to result in down the road? Well, who knows if he could just be a skier and go on to be an accountant or whatever. But is that person gonna be more interested in riding his bike instead of driving a car to school? Is he gonna be more interested in standing up for a place that's gonna be logged? Is he gonna be more interested in um, you know, caring for other people because he recognizes that people are just nature too? So I think the, the spin-off effects of, of that are, are, are quite profound. And it's in this modern age, like what other, aside from like farming or, you know, like, like tell me what are the other avenues that today's youth have to connect with, with the natural space? I mean, he's very lucky to live where he does, but you know, where are those opportunities? Yeah. Learn those lessons and develop that connection. Yeah. And it, it, it makes me think about how, these days, the majority, <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's contention in politics around it, but, but obviously climate change is, is, is on 
top of, of many people's mind, but there's, there's also all the other shit you have to do and worry about, you know, and, and it's, it's not until you under have that deeper relationship and experience that or an experience that flow that it becomes so much real. And it's, it's, it's easier to, to take those sacrifices to make sure you're, you're buying local and, and not buying factory farmed or, or uh, supporting the environment in, in that way. I, the other thing that came up when you said that is, um, is it sounds like it, there, there's, in terms of dealing with, with risk and, and consequence, uh, I, I also very much do think one of the, the other key lessons you learn from the mountains is a, a, a more of an acceptance of, of death and, and risk and harm is a great way to, to live a, a better life or, or to, to value your own life a bit, a bit more. Um, for me, I, I, uh, I grew up competing in track and field and, and moved to, to mountain sports when I realized it was so much more fun than, than running around a track. Um, but I, I very much have gotten into downhill mountain biking and, and backcountry skiing when my brain is fully developed. And so there's, 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 a, there's a lot more fear that I have to confront. And I, I found it fear and, and risk as well. But I, I find it a, a very healthy practice to, to feel that fear and then do it anyway. I'm curious how fear comes up for you when you're outdoors these days. Well, um, you know, I'm getting older. So uh, I, and, I, and I've done, been doing this my whole life. So I, I have the benefit of um, being able to make maybe fairly good decisions and, and then also having the, the skill set perhaps to like avoid um eating shit on the regular <laughs> you know I'm, like as opposed to like you know i've, I've tried surfing a bunch of times and that just horrifies me i suck at it I crash all the time um so being in the mountains uh, today um probably what scares me the most is like when i take my kids out there and i feel like i'm like the responsible one, or I go with my life and leave um, the, our two little daughters at home. And, uh, you know, they're 15 and 13. And, we, you know, instead of back in Shabbat, we left them at home for three days. So just this kind of uh, lingering fear of like, ah, something happened out there without them, like that kind of stuff. But um, it, it, it's usually like before I go. And when I'm there, um, it's lessons, but I think I just, you know, you just gotta like, you just, you just gotta accept it and, and how it ever comes and you just go like, okay, it's there. Um, worst case scenario is bad for sure. But am I gonna stay home because I'm worried about worst case scenario or am I gonna go and just do everything in my power to mitigate and avoid worst case scenario when you're there? you're going to get into situations where you need to make a call in a moment. Slope's getting warm. Is it too warm? You want to go over this pass. You should go for it. Relying on your experience, relying on your friends, being with people that you can kind of trust to help you make smart decisions. Um, and then just kind of going with your gut. And that's, that's where I think a lot of people that are new to sports get into trouble is they don't have that guidance to rely on. And that really only happens over 
you know, committing to something for a long time. Um, so, and that, that being said, like in the past, you know, I've definitely done some stuff that has um, been super risky, but I've always just kind of in those, in those high risk moments, I just go inside and I try and figure out if this is, if this is something I should be doing or not and listen to that, to that instinct and respond to it. And I've definitely stood down from lots of things. Um, and I definitely have eaten shit. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a fun thing to, to deal with. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it, it's, it, what's, it's gets the juices flowing a little bit, you know, we're not afraid of driving a car and most of us aren't afraid driving in a plane. A lot of us, when we get into a helicopter, we're not afraid. Um, so, and I know there's a lot of people living in places around the world that deal with fear every day that they can't control. Um, and I, I, I can't even sort of touch on those points because I've never been in that situation. I've been in places where I've been afraid of, you know, of other people or dangerous, tech, you know, neighborhood or whatever, but dealing with fear on your own terms in the mountains or um, pushing yourself athletically or even just pushing yourself in business or creatively um, is, is fun. And I think it's, it's worth doing. And uh, it's surprising what can happen. Um, you know, I, I, I was uh, the free ride team, uh, my, my kid's on the whitewater free ride team and he's, does Chuck's backflips like it's no big deal. And, and uh, we went and my older son is 22, went and skied with him. And um, he had a bunch of friends on the team and they were encouraging to send in a little bit. And my older son hasn't done a backflip in three years. And he, he chucked a giant backflip just out of nowhere and landed it. It could have been terrible, but he landed it. And it was a huge moment for him and his buddies and everyone. It was just, it was big. Um, and he overcame his fears and his buddies were all stoked. And I'm like, shit, like, you know, if he was too afraid, like, you know, that kind of stuff, that balance of, you know, risk versus reward or something, you know, it's, it's, it's worth the conversation. It's worth um, getting close to it and hoping you don't screw it up because consequences can be big. And I've, and I've seen, you know, yes, terrible shit go down for sure. Did any uh, does anything come to mind when uh, say recent examples where you you made an assessment of risk on something you went for it and afterwards you're like oof I didn't that was a lot more risky than I thought it would be. Um, yeah, it usually happens mountain biking. <laughs> yeah. Well, mountain biking is gnarly, as you well know. You know so. Um, Yeah, I can't, I can't think of a particular instance, um, but there's been, there's been lots in my, you know, I've, I've, we all make mistakes, you know. I, uh, I remember skiing down a chute I didn't know would go, um, but we thought it would. And so I was first to go and uh, 
and I was going to go down. And if we couldn't go through, if the shoot didn't go, um, I was going to hide back up. And, you know, a ways down the chute, my tips hit a little slope that was in the sun and it popped and took me for a ride. And I was sliding down the chute that I had no idea if it clipped out or what it did. And I went around the corner and uh, it was like, you know, 50 feet of low angle rock or high angle rock, you know, like no snow on it. And somehow, some way my boot caught and I catapulted over the thing and landed in the snow and it was fine. So, okay, well, I'm never gonna ski down a chute that I don't know what for. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I don't know. I think I've been, yeah, I'm not the riskiest guy. I've been pretty calculated, I'd say. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's an important part of like if you want to do this for like I want to I want to ski in the backcountry until I'm 85 if I can like I'm just gonna keep going and my neighbor is you know he owns a backcountry lodge and I'm going with tomorrow he's 70 and he shreds um, and he's smart and and you know his risky days are over and he's um, very calculated and you know a, a, a lot of these guys that have been in the game is like you don't get into avalanches like you've got your avalanche gear and your avalanche training but you know a lot of what's missed in avalanche training especially is like and that's the, the, the amount of, that's the big training it's not your peeps rescue how fast you can embarrass them and it's like don't ever get into an avalanche that's gonna solve all your problems mm. um so i'm in that mode in my life now is is uh i want to do this for a long time so i'm I'm being, I'm being pretty smart and I don't need to, you know, prove to anyone, anything with lines and it, you know, um, you know, when things open up and, and when the time is right. And if you're feeling it, like, you know, take it in that moment and there'll be a lot of signs that tell you like, okay, you know, the Alpine, like the Alpine in the Kootenays right now is like really good and really stable stuff can still happen, but there's opportunities this year, this spring that haven't presented themselves for a while. So I don't know if I'm necessarily going to go for that, but you know, the opportunity is there to explore that idea safely. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I, I have growing respect for anyone who, who can shred and also have the longevity of, of, of still be shredding throughout time, you know, um you you raise something something else there in terms of, of of ego which i think is is very pertinent to to this as well in terms of it's one thing to listen to your intuition it's another to separate intuition from ego and i and i have definitely been guilty myself of having kodak confidence of like being braver than i think i am because of how awesome the video is going to look i'm curious if you see any of that in culture these days or whether you can comment on that oh yeah i've seen a ton of that i mean i've been in um I've, I've, you know through my career i've been in a lot of i've, I've produced and directed a bunch of films in ski space and mountain bike space and seen some terrible crashes seen some incredible things go down as well um You know, that's, that's an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a real difference between, and I think Instagram and 
social media and stuff is, is kind of plays a weird role in this because you know you do something epic and your initial reaction is to tell everybody and does that distract you from the actual like beauty of the moment because no matter what you do or how amazing the film is or you know great the photo is you're never going to be able to parlay the experience that you had doing that um so isn't it just okay to just live in that you know that experience as opposed to having to go look what i did look what i did the the athletes that i really respect you know obviously they got to share what they do for a living um and the ones that i see are perhaps the most solid are the ones that are truly doing it for themselves and then they're going okay look what i did this was a cool here's the story behind it but like they are are and that's basically you know you're a professional athlete when you get to that level you're doing this but you are doing it for yourself you know and it's um it's a pretty awkward um journey getting to pro athlete i think as you're younger it's a pretty awkward journey for people who are perhaps new to the sport or people who are really trying to take a step. Um, and, you know, they are linking it with, look what I did here, look what I did there. Um, that's, that's, that's the danger zone for sure. Um, yeah, that is dangerous territory because you're, you're not necessarily doing it for yourself and you're putting a whole bunch of pressure on yourself to do stuff um, for other people, which I don't think the mountains really like to cater to, you know, uh -huh. much like the ocean, I don't think likes to cater to people who are paying attention to it or turn their back to it or, you know, it's, it's, it, it'll smack you down pretty, pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, and you know, it, with snow, especially like just the, the subtleties are so fine. I mean, it basically comes down to a snowflake, right? Whether you live or die sometimes in avalanche is so, um, that's why I think, you know, uh, magazines like ours or podcasts like this, or people talking about this, especially for people who are new to this, um, because more and more people are getting into it and more and more people are exploring backcountry and, and, and the, and the access is incredible and there's snowmobiles now and there's um awesome maps um on your phone so you know exactly where you are and you know there's tons of safety stuff um just in the last 20 years so the the gear and the access is like a way ahead of a lot of people's skill sets and they're really in a rush to like you know get up to where perhaps some of the other people they are or, in the town are and, and that that rush is um if it's not done with humility and uh respect and a whole lot of learning that's that that's can be hyper dangerous i think yeah def definitely worth it yeah, yeah i love the framing of uh yeah the the ocean or, or the mountains mother nature doesn't really treat too kindly to ego and and that's one of the great teachers is is humility and and being able to hold that 
mother nature could end you in any moment and you could be doing nothing wrong. You could just be caught in a, a, a change of, of weather in the, the wrong place or, or one snowflake falling the wrong way and, and it's not going to end well. Right. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, we've covered, we've covered risk, death, ego, humility, connection with nature. I'm curious if there's, if you had to, to share any other kind of lessons that you take back from the mountains, if there's anything else. Yeah, I would say um, for myself personally, uh, like creativity, I think is, and, and, and friendship are, are two, you know, big pieces out there that, um, you know, that's where a lot of your time is spent, especially if you're, if you're with other people. Um, you know, if you go ski touring for a full day, you're, you're skiing for like 20 minutes <laughs> in an eight hour day or, or half an hour maybe, where you're actually skiing. The rest of the time you're walking and you're talking. Um, and I've always felt it's for myself personally, like that's where I'm probably the most funny. Um, that's where I like to be the biggest goofball. That's where I've had some of the more kind of emotional experiences and bonding experiences with my friends, my partner, who I spent a lot of time in the mountains with my, my family. Um, and I, I, I think that's on an equal level with, with all of those, you know, there's lots of lessons to learn out there, but there's, um, it's an opportunity to be your true self. You know, you're, you're in the middle of nowhere. So there's no one else around except you and those closest to you. And, and, and if you're doing it right, like people that you really trust and care about and these people you might be leaning on to, to help save you or you then. And even though you're not really thinking about that, you need to be prepared for that. Um, and you need to be able to, you know, throw down in, in that moment if something, something happens. So, um, you're almost kind of living like it's your last day on the mm. planet, you know? And, um, I just find, uh, it's where I'm my happiest. It's where other people are super happy. And I really like get into that. So, you know, group hugs at the end of every day, you know, doing crazy photo poses on the summit and being a total goofball in the lodge and just trying to laugh and soak it all in like every second of it. Um, that's really important to me. Yeah, that resonates a lot. I think especially I've been getting a lot more into mountaineering over the last year and, and it's the same for backcountry skiing is that you, you, you truly are, uh, at the whim of your partners. Um, yeah. and it's those hairy situations and also kind of understanding that, that, that really builds those relationships and, and breaks down those barriers. And, and I mean, it's any like time spent with a true mountain person in the mountains they're all hilarious. Mm. They're all super creative. They're all super witty. Um, they all have their own sort of interesting, you know, sense of humor. Um, you know, so I think, yeah, that camaraderie and just that character building is really cool. And it's, and it's something you really want to pay attention to. You know, it's not just about like how much power are we getting and let's go ski that, let's go ski that. I mean, most of your time is going to be spent communicating with these people. So um, 
you might as well make it as awesome as you can because you're not sitting in a living room or you're not just having a dinner. You're like, you're on an adventure. This is, this is a big deal and don't happen every day. So I, I see sometimes people just kind of taking that for granted. Just yeah. like, oh, this is for a ski tour. This is no big deal. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I love that. Well, Mitch, this has been an, an absolute pleasure. I've, I've really enjoyed this this conversation. You've got a, a lot of wisdom to, to share, so I appreciate that. Uh, I'm curious where people can find more of you. I know, you, have you probably got an, an, another edition of, of, of KMC coming out soon? Yeah, so we, we actually managed to publish straight through um, the COVID pandemic, which is crazy. We lost Coast Mountain culture for the short term, hopefully, but we put all our energy into Cooney Mount Culture Store. Our summer issue is coming out in May. Um, the resourcefulness, I think it's the resourceful issue. Um, so you can, they go really fast these days. So you can get a subscription if you go to mountainculturegroup.com. That's where all our stuff is. And you can follow Cooney Mount Culture on Instagram um, and Facebook. And then, um, yeah, that's where most of my stuff is these days. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely attest to to how hard it is to get it on on Cedar Sky. That's for sure. Um, any other projects or or kind of causes that that you'd like to to service? I know you, you spoke about the the public lands project earlier. Is there anything else kind of on your radar? Um, I am working on a documentary project with Antel Bikes, Antel Films. Sorry. Um, which has to do with the bicycle. <laughs> um, and that's going to be uh, probably up in 2022. But um, that's taking quite a, quite a bit of my creative bandwidth right now. So I'm having, you know, we're going through the biggest bike boom in the history of the invention um, and what people are calling the third great bike boom. Um, and it's a very interesting time in, in cycling um, globally. And there's a real opportunity to, to shift the paradigm here into a, into a more bike friendly culture and how we move day to day, um, in our cities and in our towns. Um, so I'm super deep in, in that, which has been a, a, a project that's been a big passion of mine for quite a long time. So it's fun to see it come to fruition. Wow. And so is that just COVID driven or, or what else is, is driving that, that third wave of, of bikes? Oh, I know. Yeah. The good question. I mean, it's, it is, it is COVID driven for sure. Um, and you know, what happened as we all saw is, you know, people, you know, at the outset, people didn't want you going on public transit can go to gyms. You had to social distance cities were all of a sudden, you know, um, ghost towns, they were starting to erect um, temporary bike lanes. Um, so what were people gonna do? You know, they were gonna ride bikes. So, I mean, now what they're saying is the supply chain is so disrupted and the capacity is so maxed that, um, you know, a lot of bike brands are, are selling bikes into 2022, 2023. Um, but it was building before. I believe there's been a lot of momentum in South America, obviously Europe, um, and in North America as well for getting people on bikes more. Um, but 
it's a real infrastructure problem because hmm. um, it's uh, it's dangerous um, in, in a lot of places, and we we haven't really done a good job of structuring the way we move around to be um, conducive to to bikes. So that needs to change. Hmm. Um, but man, is it an incredible invention, and I, you know. It, it really needs to. Uh, so we're hoping that this story really kind of helps shed the light on just uh, the depth and breadth of, of the bicycle and and what it brings out of us too. I'll leave you a little tidbit. Of what, not too many people know this, but when a human being gets on a bicycle, we become the most efficient animal on the planet for distance gained versus calories expended. Um, more than wolf, antelope, anything. We can go farther for less on a bike than any other living creature on the planet. At the same time, the bike as a machine becomes the most efficient machine on the planet for energy expended versus distance gained. So electric cars, airplanes, nothing else is more efficient than a bicycle with a human being on it. Wow. And that's not even touching on any of the, the externalities of, of carbon output and things, right? No, or just what it does to your body, what it does to your yeah. mental state, what, you know, your experience riding through the city, you know, um, yeah. cost, expenditure, you know, so, so I'm pretty excited about that project. Beautiful. Well, just from speaking to it now, I'm excited about it as well. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really do want outro music. I think I want the song, uh, by Mita Flores, but I got to figure out if, uh, I need to pay royalties or, or how you do that. If you know the answer to that, please hit me up. Um, you can find Kuni Mountain Culture Magazine at Valhalla, out, uh, Valhalla Pure Outfitters if you're in BC. Uh, very difficult to get. They, get. they get snapped up very quickly. I believe Coast Mountain Culture is still on hiatus. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or hit me up directly. Uh, probably best way is on Instagram, uh, TimStewNZ. That's T-I-M. S-T-E-W-N-Z. Cheers, until next time.